to episode 200 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and joining me on the podcast is Denise Mina to talk about The Less Dead, which is scheduled for publication in North America on August 18th, 2020. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. The Less Dead starts with Dr. Margot Dunlop, a general practitioner in Glasgow who, after the death of the mother who adopted her, is meeting with an agency that will introduce her to members of her birth family. There are all manner of issues swirling through this, nature versus nurture, the tendency to be judgmental, and the expectations of class. By that I mean, Margot is a doctor at the top of the social strata, and yet she's a bit of a mess. And her aunt, uh, who she meets, Nikki, is a former prostitute, sex worker. So have I sort of got it? Perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Yep. And can you talk about that? Can you talk about the sort of the contrast between Margot, who, you know, uh, is a little bit of a there, but for the grace of God, uh, and Nikki, uh, who talks to Margot about her mother, who has her birth mother, who has passed, and uh, what they did and what they had to do to survive? Well, the book is based on a series of true crime murders that happened in Glasgow in the late 80s, um, right up until the year 2000. And there were eight sex, street sex workers who were murdered in Glasgow. And the very last one was a really lovely woman um, who came from a lovely family. And she was very vulnerable and she'd had a terrible thing happen in her life. And she started using drugs and um, she was murdered in the course of that. And uh, she was very sympathetic and her family were really sweet, you know, and they would go on TV and they would appeal for information about her. And it was so striking how different it was to the other murders, the way it was handled and the way the public responded, the way people spoke about her. Millions were spent on the investigation. And it really made me think about the women who had died in the previous murders. And it really made me think about why we didn't have that kind of reaction to them. Was it that social attitudes had changed or was it that they came from the wrong kinds of families? And so um, I, I wanted to explore that in a fictional setting. And the more I looked at it and the more people I spoke to who were around during that time, the more it became obvious that to really talk about the details of those cases would be a bit exploitative, to be honest. The, the ethics of it were really interesting and you know, um, one of the people that, one of the police officers that I spoke to who worked those crimes said, you know, some of these people have children that don't know that that's how their parent died. And you can't expose that in this book. And so you have to take the, the, fa the, the facts of it, but change them so that no one's recognisable. And the names are known. It's not a secret or anything like that. But it just, it really brought home the, the ethics of me you know, a middle-class white woman looking at tragedies, you know, thinking about the ethics of it. And I felt very much like Margot at that time. And so the book really became about Margot trying to find out what happened to her mother, trying to find out why nobody particularly cared, and also trying to, she starts to get letters from someone who purports to be the murderer. And it's about whether or not she um, is being stalked by the same person. Was it a serial killer? Why do we need the serial killer story? What does that, because people kept saying it was a serial killer in Glasgow, and what was very obvious was it wasn't a serial killer. It was a lot of men from fairly ordinary backgrounds who used incredibly vulnerable sex workers and um, sometimes killed them. And that's a much more disturbing truth 
than the idea that there's a supervillain, you know, doing Jack the Ripper type stuff. It was it was your dad. It was you know the guy that drives the school bus. It was really it was very very creepy. Um, and uh, so it, it got creepier and creepier, but that was the basic starting point for the book. And and then Black Lives Matter and, and happened just after I'd finished the book. And but the whole book is really about how we value victims and why we value some victims more than others. And, you know, what it is to be middle class, examining cases like that and thinking about the value of other people's lives. Well, you, you actually, at this meeting, or very soon after, uh, Nikki, who is uh, Margot's aunt, uh, when Margot asks her about this, <clears throat> she says, Nikki says to her, when we get killed, they call us the less dead. Like we never, like we were never really alive to begin with. See, if Susan was a doctor like you, they'd have brought in the fucking army. She looks at Margot, you'd be the perfect victim. And what that thought to me was families. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's so family because even though they didn't know each other, it's, there's, I I think um, uh, there's the family you choose and there's the family uh, or the family that chooses you in the case of adoption. And there is uh, the family that you inherit yeah, and, you know, you 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 can't escape either. Is the sort of the you know? Point. I think I think it's nice to choose your family, but I think as I get older, maybe I'm one of the obnoxious ones. But the idea of having obnoxious people in your family that you have to tolerate and try and understand—that's so useful socially. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't just be with people who are like you. And you know, I come from a huge family. My mom was one of fifteen. And, uh, you know, I've got a lot of cousins and we're all very close and we're all very, very different. And, um, you know, the longer I'm alive, the more I realize, God, I'm so lucky to know all these people who are not like me. I mean, some of my family are very, very religious. Um, Some of them have entered religious orders. Uh, Some of them have been to prison for robbing banks. You know, it's like there's a whole microcosm there. Um, But, you know, you can choose your family and that's lovely. But at the same time, the idea of having random people who who rub you up the wrong way and challenge you, because Nikki really challenges her. And I hope what becomes clear is Nikki's truth is as valid as anybody else's. And if you are a street sex worker and your friends are being murdered and no one really cares, that how does that feel, you know, to be um, termed the less dead for nobody to really care because your lifestyles are chaotic? Well, exactly. The other thing I liked about this story so much was everybody in it seems to defy expectation. And that's something I find a lot in your novels. You go into it, okay, Margot's a doctor and Nikki is a a former sex uh, worker who has a a friend, a close friend, a, a, a woman with whom she's in a relationship, maybe, Lizzie, who loves the football and, and this is all and who lives in a sketchy part of town. And so it's, it's sort of, there are these expectations that each has of the other and none of them are true because Margot is a mess. She's a hot mess, not professionally. She might be an excellent doctor, but emotionally and it, it, what's going on emotionally in her head, which is understandable. She's just lost her mother. She's just found out her birth mother was a sex worker. But I have a feeling that 
before all this, she was a bit of a mess as well. That's I mean, I think, that's, I think that's one of the lovely things is you think Margot's gossip made, she's got everything, she's got a house, she's, but, you know, everyone is sorry for themselves and thinks it's all right for everyone else. And I think maturing as a person and as a character is a realisation that no one has it right, you know? I was... Um, I was with this guy as a friend of mine and he'd made it across the Mediterranean in a dinghy. And um, I mean, it was a few years ago, but we were in London and we were walking down the street and we met this guy, quite a well-known guy, and he monologued for 25 minutes about his commute and what a nightmare it was to get the two underground trains in London <laughs> for about 50 minutes. <laughs> and I thought, you know, what, what you, he, he's not a bad guy. I've said those things, you know. He's not a bad guy. I've done that morning. But you think, you know, whatever the company, please don't let me be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. And the thing is, Nikki thinks Margot's gossip made. And, uh, you know, Margot thinks everyone else is happy and knows who they are. And by meeting each other and being so different, they kind of arrive at a different place. Well, yes, I, I, I you know what? I can, <clears throat> I can understand not wanting to be that guy. And, and this is... <laughs> You know, complaining about your commute is a quality problem. It is, though, isn't it? And it is going to increasingly be, you know, a quality, in the next few years, I think, because I think things are going to get a bit rough. <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit more about Margot. And this is a bit of a diversion, but we'll come back uh, to the question. Uh, I'm in a crime fiction book club. And last month we read Conviction, which is your 2019 uh, novel, which I have to say is my favorite novel of 2019. And I read, oh, I read one of the members thought Anna McDonald, uh, Sophie Buchanan, what Bacarin, excuse me, Sophie Bacarin was difficult and translated. Uh, Anna Sophie didn't go along to get along. You know, she spoke up and tried to save her own life. And I thought that was among many things, the best thing about her. And Margot was also difficult. She wants to know who killed her mom, who wrecked such havoc on women that the police didn't see it as worthwhile. She wants to know who's sending her these letters. So let's talk about difficult women and the reactions they get and, and why are other women still cringing at difficult women? I love difficult women. I can see myself love one. Women. I love belligerent women. And um, I don't, you know, I think a lot of people make compromises in their life and then they look at you and they think you dress like a crazy woman you have you know you've got a career I mean I think it's difficult for people to to not be resentful if I saw me Nancy I'd be resentful and <laughs> I resent you yeah I, I do yeah no I, I think that's but fair in, in, the, in the best possible way <laughs> and I think lots of people shut up and don't say anything and they train themselves to be quiet and they train themselves to leave space and they train themselves to, to sit small, to cross their legs and tuck their elbows in and not take up a lot of space and don't fucking swear. And, you know, if someone says something, you don't say anything and that becomes their training and you learn that from a very, very young age. But... Um, the women I'm really attracted to and the men I'm really attracted to as well are the people who say the honest thing. And I honestly think that comes from having a period of depression in your life. Is If you go through a period of depression in your life, you are quite reckless. I think it's a recklessness. 
And I think it's a kind of desperation. And if you are like that and you are a bit blurty and then you can, all it takes is a willingness to apologize if you're wrong. So if you say to somebody, why are you saying that? I don't like that you're saying that. I feel like you're belittling me. And someone says, oh, I'm not doing that. I've actually got an ingrown toenail and I'm in a lot of pain. And then you say, oh, I'm really sorry. I misunderstood that situation. That's all it takes. Do you know what I mean? You can backtrack. But um, but I think a lot of people make those compromises and are very uncomfortable with people saying uncomfortable things. They're very uncomfortable. I mean, when I started out as a crime writer, it was very unfashionable to be a feminist. And people would say to me, are you not worried that people are going to see you as a feminist? And I would say, I am a feminist. And it was like, Whoa. You know, uh, <laughs> and I'd say, but, you know, I'm not one of those, um, you know, those feminists everybody hates that are really belligerent and argumentative and all that kind of thing. That's the kind I am. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then expected, you know, expectations are low, but some people are not going to like you for that. And they're going to feel that you're going to argue with them. And the thing is, I think that's fair play because I will argue with you, but I won't hate you. And I won't fester and I won't secretly, you know, go away and say things behind your back. I'll say them to your face and I won't carry it with me. And I think we would all be a bit better off if that happened more often. I mean, what you're seeing around Trump is this normalisation of niceness around someone who isn't nice. And sometimes it takes one Australian guy to say, what? You know, that guy, (laughs) you know, the guy who did the interview. Why is everyone not saying you're talking rubbish? Why are people not saying that, you know? Um, it, it, I mean, just being honest. You're not being nasty. You're just being honest. And but I have had that reaction to Anna a lot, and not just from from women. And it's people saying, um, you know, there's some sort of nebulous not niceness about Anna. And actually, Anna is very depressed and a bit frantic, and that's why she's saying the worst thing you can say to people all the time. She's not doing it to be nasty. No, I I have to. I I, I don't usually talk about myself in podcasts, but uh, Anna struck a chord. Uh, something happened to me when I was a young woman, uh, not as bad as Anna, uh, fortunately, was what well, was not a sexual attack, but someone attempted to kill me in a case of mistaken identity. And my reaction was a step back from hers. I mean, I completely retreated. I did change my name. I did... Uh, go through all the things you could do just to, you know, I didn't have a listed phone number. I actually ran away. I went to live in my hometown of Montreal, Montreal, Canada. And I, coming back into it, uh, obviously I didn't have a, I have a podcast now, but I didn't then. It was, it was the seventies. It really struck some, it struck a lot of chords for me. And I thought, uh, Maybe that's why I am how I am now that I know that these people aren't trying to kill me anymore. You know, uh, I am uh, considered difficult because I Are you? had to not be difficult to, to, in my head, survive. And now, uh, so, so Anna really spoke to me. So I... Oh, that's that's so lovely. I'm so pleased that that she seemed she felt real to you. And I know so many people who have gone through real losses like that, real loss of faith in the world, and have come out of it so much stronger. I'm I'm really touched that 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 that's, that struck a chord with you. I'm really touched, and you know sometimes. You write a book and you just thought, I don't think anybody's going to get what this is about. I just don't think anyone's going to get it. And I wrote a book called Garnet Hill and oh, yeah. people said, oh, 
oh, she's a difficult person, or, you know, um, are you a feminist? Do you know, do you not think everyone should just be nice to men? Or I fuck all, I don't fucking know. And and about 10 years later, I met a woman and she said, I read that book when I was in a locked ward. And she said it really meant so much to her. And she 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 was she was in re- in really good shape. And she travelled the world, and everywhere she went, she left a copy of Garnet Hill in case somebody was a bit down, you know? That, and, well, um, I, can, I can see that. I could see... You know? Uh, Garnet Hill was a bit of a revelation because, as you said, uh, and I believe that was your first crime fiction was a trilogy, but I believe it was, yeah. that was your first one. And it was because you had a, a, a woman that was not the sidekick of a man who... Uh, kicked ass and 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 she she'd been mentally ill and this was the afterwards because you never hear about the afterwards you never hear about the hordes of people who have been through that and have gone on to lead lives and use their skills and their intuition to solve problems and save other people and every kid I know who grows up in care wants to be a social worker because that's you know because that's the professionals you see and that's the people who can actually make a difference. And you think you can do that job well. So, you know, you, you hear about people being broken, but you don't hear about the incredible compassion and insightfulness. You hear about hypervigilance and anxiety, but you don't hear about how useful that can be. Those experiences can be afterwards. We're never heroes, you know. Not people in our who survive, story. No, people who survive awful stuff, we're never heroes. It's never like... You know, good for you. You grew up in an abusive home. <laughs> it's always you're tragic, you're broken, and maybe if you got a rich husband, you'd be all right. You know, Do you know well, what I mean? It's never... Yeah, that's that's uh, you know that's always that's always the case. If you if you, yeah. if only, you could, only you could marry well and uh, and and carry on and just forget about all that nastiness and uh, it'll all be all right. Well, you carry it's it's part of your baggage and you yeah, carry it is. and. Uh, and how much of a weight it is, is part of your internal story. And that's, <clears throat> I think that's one of the things I like so much about your characters is they come up to these precipices and they <clears throat> are not afraid to jump and see what's at the bottom. And yeah. that's, you know, that's, Margot is the same way. Margot I don't want to. I don't want to introduce any spoilers, but Margot surprises the reader and surprises herself. I think as she goes well, along in the course of 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 this story. I mean, I, I wanted it to be a bit like Hamlet, in that he's paralyzed by not doing anything. One of the things about doctors is there's lots of things they can't do. Um, so all the way through, she's quite passive. She's a passive recipient of this experience. And then finally, she does take action. And, um, uh, you know, <clears throat> I think one of the questions that always hangs over crime fiction, I'm sure you feel the same way, is why would anybody do this? I mean, that's one of the reasons police procedurals are so popular, because it's obvious why they would do it. Um, Police procedurals are never like any policeman I know. Policemen I know are quite jolly and they're great raconteurs and they don't walk about with torches being serious all the time like we've never seen a dead body before. You know, they're, they're quite gallows humour and quite kind of gung-ho. And, um, you know, they, they, if you want a good story, ask a policeman because, they're, they're, you know, I mean, they have to be ebullient to be able to, to do the job. But um, if you have a, 
a first person detective who isn't a police officer, why would any, what would motivate anybody to not just phone the police or, uh, you know, just walk away or go, you know, go and hide, you know? And um, so that becomes the question at the, the heart of the story is why should she care about her mother? Well, and, and I think at the heart of the story is also these things are happening to her from all different angles. She's got a best friend who everybody's got a best friend like uh, Lila. <laughs> Thank you so much. And, and, and just, you know, just does all of these things and sort of like every phone conversation is, you did what? Um, <laughs> and, and yet you're friends and you defend and you- this, this friend against all others. Uh, and so, so Margot's got that going on in her life. She's, uh, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that she's just found out she's pregnant by her partner who she's just left. And so that's what I mean by she's a hot mess and she can't do a lot of things as a physician, uh, and not lose her license and her way of, of making a living and her identity. Yes. Doctors very much. That's who they are are sometimes more than, you know, she's Dr. Dunlop uh, before she's Margot. Yeah. And it's such a strong training. I mean, it's like 10 years of training to, to be this very particular type of alpha personality. So, you know, how she proceeds, why she doesn't call the police, how she reacts to her friends, I think it's, it's just this lovely, like, little Jenga thing that finally just uh, ends in a most... Shall we, I think we can say it in most satisfactory fashion. Oh, good. I'm glad. Because <laughs> you don't know till the book comes out. <laughs> so my last question is usually, what are you working on now? And so, but I'm going to, I'm going to maybe ask you to combine two questions, which is, what are you doing to stay sane? And I say that with, with humility because it's wonderful to, it is wonderful. And we are so fortunate to be in a position where, uh, we have, we can think about that. Like, what am I doing to stay sane, uh, as opposed to what am I going to do to feed my family? And what am I going to do to pay the bills? And what am I going to do to keep the electricity on? But at the same time, um, I had the conversation, uh, actually I'm going to publish it today with, uh, T Jefferson Parker. And he lives in a remote area in Fallbrook, California. And, and he said he is writing more than he's ever written before because he's, uh, you know, he lives in this isolated area. And writers, we should note, the lockdown is a weird thing for writers because writers spend an inordinate amount of time in a room by themselves. So the, some writers I've asked have said, well, you know, it's hard to tell the difference, except I can't go to Starbucks and write. Sometimes I do that. Uh, although now you can, you can, if you sit outside. So what are you doing to stay sane? Is it impacting your writing? Are you just getting distracted by everything that's going on? And uh, what's your next book? Because I'm sure you've pressed the send button. I, I'm the same. I've never written as much before in my life I've never been as productive because I can write from a place of anxiety I find ra- I find writing very relaxing I find it a real um it feels like stepping into another room and uh um but my problem is I now have a house full of people where normally I have a lot of time on my own I don't really have a lot of time on my own because the schools are shut so um but I've been writing lots of different things 
Um, and um, my next book, which I'm working on now, is called Confidence, and it's Anna and Finn again. Yay! <laughs> and they find uh, somebody has been either murdered or suicided, and they had discovered proof of Christianity, which has now disappeared. I don't know if you know about the Bible Museum. I've been buying up artifacts from all over the world for millions of dollars, and it turns out a lot of them are fraudulent. And it made me um, try to... It just sort of started finding out about the international artifacts market, which is... It's a hot mess. (laughs) 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 Academics um, with million-dollar budgets who don't know how to handle money. Oh, it's just mesmerising. The whole thing's mesmerising. So I'm working on that right now. Um, but I've been doing, I've just been doing loads and loads of projects. Um, but for keeping sane, you know, I think a lot about my mental health. I have to be quite careful and I don't know how you feel, but I've noticed as soon as I say, actually, I think I'm all right, I go on a downer and we've lost family members, I think, to COVID. We may never know, but it's been quite a heavy time. And um, so I've been doing things like just getting, keeping it in the day and um, doing meditation, trying to exercise because it's good for your mood, looking after others, making sure I'm not just thinking about how I am all the time, um, you know, um, doing shopping for friends who are shielding, trying to be part of a bigger community. I think being outward looking is very good for your mental health um, as well as the people who get the shopping, um, you know, uh, just stuff like that. And then sometimes just watching trashy TV and listening to podcasts podcasts like Trashy Divorces. I don't know if you know that one. No, but I'm writing it down. Oh, my God. It's brilliant. (laughs) It's so great. These brilliant, brilliant women. And they award trash cans, according to, like, seven trash cans for how trashy a divorce is and stuff like that. And um, just being being self-aware, actually, and trying to be aware of the people around me and making sure everybody's okay. But I'm very lucky because I live near a very big park and we have a dog and there's a a social distance kind of social group there that you just take the dog out and you're automatically meeting other people. So that's kind of great. But I think being outward looking is very important at this time and being aware of other people and how they are. And uh, and that's so good for your mental health. You wouldn't think it would be, but it is. It's really important to be other centred. Well, it's interesting to hear that you're writing a lot, and I think that that's wonderful. And I do, I agree with you uh, 100%. But you make an excellent point, that you have to own your own mental health, and when you think to yourself, I'm okay, that's when you maybe are not paying enough attention. Yeah, I think you're right. And, um, uh, and you know, it's all right to reach out, and it's all right to get professional help, and, uh, you know, you may be more useful if you are well, because... You know, somebody you know maybe tail you know nose diving and just watch your mood and uh, uh, and don't fret too much because we've only got today. That's true. So, will you uh, promise me that we can talk about your next book when it's out? Maybe, oh, maybe, in, per, maybe in person. Uh, we haven't oh, seen each oh, other for a number of years, but uh, mm-hmm. it's nice to see your face. And I'm so uh, thrilled that you even remembered me because a lot Nancy, of people. I've... No, I've stolen things from you. You told me that your husband knew that you'd arrived in Gatwick because he had find my iPhone on your on his your find your iPhone, and I'd used that several times in books. So I do remember you because I've stolen from you. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's a gift. No theft involved. It's a gift. 
So next year in Butte, I'll buy you an ice cream. Thank you again, Denise, for, for, for agreeing to do this and uh, for writing these absolutely marvelous books and for bringing Anna and Finn back next time. Oh, uh, no. Thanks again, Denise, for joining us. And I look so forward to your next book. Um, uh, it's a real pleasure. <laughs>